1: why don't we begin so uh welcome everyone to the weekly uh krika lecture my name is ted gerber i'm the director for the center uh, for russia east europe and central asia and uh as i mentioned this is a a regular uh, weekly lecture series we have uh, virtual lectures during the academic year every thursday at 4 p.m central time um i also want to thank uh the robert f burns russia uh Russian East European uh, Institute at uh, Indiana University, which is co-hosting today's uh, lecture. It's a pleasure to work with our colleagues there at uh, jointly hosting this event. Um, And uh, without further ado then, I'll introduce Professor Catherine Graeber, who's an Assistant Professor of Anthropology and also Central Eurasian Studies at Indiana University. And uh, she's a linguistic and sociocultural anthropologist and she does research on minority language politics on multilingualism, mass media, materiality, intellectual property in Russia and Mongolia. And I've had the fortune uh, to have met Kate several times in the in the past. Uh, I know her to be a very dynamic speaker. We've been on panels together and I've seen her present in various uh, uh, circumstances. So as I mentioned, she works on both Russia and Mongolia. And uh, she's co-edited a book called uh, Storytelling as Narrative Practice, Ethnographic Approaches to the Tales We Tell. She's uh, published award-winning research in such journals as Slavic Review and the Journal of Linguistic Anthropology on Buryatia, uh, among other topics. And uh, the, since 2014, she's been researching how value is negotiated in the Mongolian Kashmir industry based on fieldwork at sites along the commodity chain. Uh, She's been funded in her studies by the National Science Foundation, by the U.S. Department of Education Fulbright Hayes Program, and by the Social Science Research Council. Uh, Most exciting of all, I I think it's fair to say, uh, in 2020, her book appeared, and the book is entitled Mixed Messages, Mediating Native Belonging in Asian Russia. And that, in fact, is the title of her lecture today. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Kate, and I will turn. The floor over to you.
0: Thank you so much, Ted, for that lovely introduction. I hope you didn't oversell me as a dynamic speaker (laughs) (laughs) Um, here on Zoom especially. And thanks also to uh, Jennifer Tischler and to, to Ted and to Sarah Phillips for the invitation to speak to you all today. And to Veronica Hayes and Carol Long also for arranging this event with such aplomb. They made everything really, really easy. So I'd also like to thank uh, the, by now, literally thousands of people who have contributed to the research I'm going to discuss today, most of whom are not credited by name in the book to protect their anonymity, but some of whom might be with us today. Don't, I don't see anybody yet, but you never know. That's the crazy thing about Zoom, right? <laughs> um, audiences colliding, it's great. So I want to point out, um, since both Wisconsin and Indiana have very active Russian studies projects, But the book that I'm discussing today is indebted to several area study centers, including REI and funding programs that have invested in understanding Russia beyond Moscow and St. Petersburg. And I'm gonna share some slides so that I can make that point a little more forcefully. So we have a we have a problem in Russian studies outside of Russia that we still have due to logistical challenges and ideological positions. Um, and perhaps just blind spots, too, a dearth of research on Siberia and the Russian Far East. So I made this map for the book when I couldn't find any adequate publicly accessible map that centered Asian Russia, east of the Urals, in English, with its regional capitals. And I think that really underscores the problem um, in Anglophone literature on Russia. So, although it covers nearly one tenth of the Earth's landmass and hosts remarkable cultural and linguistic diversity, political conditions and stereotypes have conspired to prevent the sustained research that the region really deserves. So in historical treatments, Siberia has often been considered either incidental to Moscow's and St. Petersburg power or neglected entirely. And the many people inhabiting the space, including diverse, Mongolic, Turkic, and Tungusic speaking people, political exiles and convicts, and recent migrants from other parts of the former Soviet Union have most often been studied for what they show about how European Russians un- have conceived of themselves and understand themselves, and that that emphasis in scholarship has revealed much about how ethnic Russians have used Asian populations, especially native or indigenous Siberians, as a quintessential other against whom Western Russians have figured themselves as civilizers and as builders and or as saviors. Um, and you know, I'm not anti that exactly. And such studies have productively shown the importance of looking beyond European Russia for understanding Russian self-conceptions, but at the same time, focusing too narrowly on the view from Moscow or historically St. Petersburg also risks perpetuating a notion that native Siberians are important only as foils. Geographically, Siberia is a heartland and the bulk of the country, not a periphery. So, and Russia is mostly in Asia. So the question comes then how this Vast territory has become peripheralized and marginalized and how it has become seen as seen as a place to have only foils as opposed to the center that it that it might be conceived of as um, so I really, really mean in the book to to shift attention eastward. Um, And with that move helped us to see the Siberian and Far Eastern territories on their own terms rather than as an addendum to Europe or as a satellite of, of Moscow. And I think we need more of this. So if you're a student, I want to encourage you to look eastward. And if you're a faculty member, to encourage your students to look eastward to Siberia and the Asian two thirds of Russia. Um, So this part of Russia is disproportionately home to the so-called ethnic republics of Russia and to extreme ethnic and linguistic diversity, and that's what initially drew my interest as an anthropologist. So I'm going to talk um, today, I'm going to organize my talk today around three questions. What do people themselves take to be the substance of that ethno-linguistic belonging? What forms of national revitalization or linguistic and cultural reclamation are possible in the 21st century and what can we learn from Buryatia about strategies of diversity and inclusion and their repercussions more generally so what do people take themselves to be the so what do people themselves take to be the substance of ethno-linguistic belonging this is a picture of an event that i didn't write about in the book but that encapsulates my answer to that question this was the day of the Buryat language the dien Buryatskova yazyka which took place around the middle of my research in Ulanuday, which is the capital of the Republic of Buryatia. I'll show you a map in a second. It featured This event featured children, almost exclusively racialized as Buryat, in Buryat national dress, singing songs, reciting poems, and performing uh, national Buryat dances very much according to the style of formal formatted culture that will be very familiar to anyone from or in post-Soviet space. And the sentiment, uh, on the projection screen is uin which is like um our may our great um, buryat mother language live eternally or for many years from era to era literally so not incidentally this event was advertised around ulana day more often in russian that is as dien than by its buryat title and many of the attendees were what is often called by linguists um Semi-speakers, that is, people who know some of the language, but don't control it well enough or across enough domains to be considered full speakers by other native speakers of the language. So the tenuous of knowledge here is also on display in the awkwardly rendered classical Mongolian script along the side here. The artist um, was a full Buryat speaker, but uh, he didn't, like most of Boreat speakers, he did not command um, the vertical, didn't control the vertical script. This is a script that has fallen out of use in Boreatia for the most part. But what greater demonstration of the vitality and the future of a minoritized language is there than children performing it on stage? And the attempt with its infelicities shows how much the event organizers seek a semiotic correspondence between youth, national dress, dance, writing system, and linguistic performance, the audio-visual display of vitality of the Buryat language, suggesting a future for the Buryat people. Daily attempts to maintain and negotiate these kinds of correspondence are the substance of my A new book with Cornell University Press that Ted just introduced. As a linguistic anthropologist, I was especially interested in how in Buryatia and in many other parts of the former Soviet Union and in former communist states, language has become the touchstone and often the battleground for much broader socio-political struggles. The primary way that language is available and materialized in people's daily lives is through conversation and mass media. So that is what I aimed to capture in mixed messages. The book shows how media in the Russian Federation's Buryat territories create and sustain a minority language public that plays an outsized role in ethno-national politics, but that nonetheless is rapidly shrinking and struggling to redefine itself in a new global era. So specifically, the book examines how authorities, activists, and ordinary citizens in Soviet and post-Soviet Russia have used media institutions to develop and maintain models of citizenship. It methodologically links institutions and the everyday. And what I mean by that is that most researchers studying mass media, not only in like our part of the world, but also more generally, select as their object either media producers or media audiences, or the texts and broadcasts and so on that are produced. And that's great, that can show how institutions hope to drive social linguistic change or how audience members interpret what's said on news programs. But I wanted to bring media producers and audiences together into the same framework and trace examples through the production and distribution process to elucidate how language and knowledge used and manufactured in institutional settings Circulate from and into other domains of daily life. So I had to do it all. <laughs> I had to link up the link up those different sites. And the book also follows individuals. So the book in- follows individuals, including journalists and other media creators, but not not only, across social contexts to see how they invoke different scales of belonging for different purposes at different moments. And I tried to do all of this using the Buryat language and Buryat territories of Russia as a kind of extended case study but i want to emphasize that i think the same kind of sort of the same what i mean by using the term case study in an anthropological project is that the same sort of methods could really be applied in another region of russia so i conducted uh, long-term field work in the buryat territories over five periods between 2005 and 2012 for a total of 20 months and then i continued with some digital ethnography in which i'm not going to talk about that too much today um, but what I found in a nutshell was that many of the same strategies for policing what counts as a good buriat. Um, and who should be taken as an authoritative speaker of Buryat are being extended into the digital sphere. And most people are effectively re-territorializing Buryatia by insisting on physical linkages to the homeland or the rodina, as people often call it in Russian, um, especially in light of a growing Buryat diaspora. And that that data from digital ethnography appears in chapter seven. So the Buryat territories lie on the Russian-Mongolian border in Asian Asian Russia. about three and a half days from Moscow by train. They include the Republic of Buryatia, which is a semi-autonomous ethnic republic at present, and two smaller territories, Aga, over here, and Ustorta, which were dissolved and merged into the surrounding Russian-dominated regions by administrative restructuring and federal recentralization during my research. And those mergers, so these, these have been dissolved and will no longer appear on those maps. Um, those mergers bear on my topic today because they raised the political st- stakes of speaking or of not speaking Buryat. So in discussions leading up to the dissolution of Ustorda, some proponents of dissolution claimed that the fact that most Buryats there no longer spoke Buryat proved that political autonomy hadn't actually worked to maintain an identifiable Buryat culture. And similar arguments have been circulated to justify dissolving the Republic of Buryatia. Not Aga, because Aga was a different case because it's actually uh, has fairly robust um, language maintenance and cultural maintenance. Um, but similar arguments have been circulated to justify dissolving the Republic of Buryatia. And although those remain mainly rumors, the threat of using language preservation as a criterion for ethnic political autonomy has inspired anxiety over the erosion of the principle of ethno-national autonomy. And that is an anxiety that is present beyond Buryatia as well, of course. So I collected ethnographic, sociolinguistic, and archival data on Buryat Russian um, language use and on the development, consumption, um, and production of local media across a range of platforms, including print, radio, television, and uh, some new or digital media doing quotation marks. <laughs> um, so during all five research periods, I was based in Ulanuday, where I lived with host families in private apartments and briefly in the dormitory of Buryat State University. And from this base, I conducted field research at different times in most of the d- republics of, I'm sorry, most of the districts of the Republic of Buryatia, like different the different regions, and also in Ustorda and um, Aga. Olanade is perhaps best known for hosting the world's largest head of Lenin, but it's also a multi-ethnic, multilingual post-Soviet city that bears the traces of Buryatia's long integration into the Russian Empire and Soviet Union in more subtle ways than the giant head. There are Ukrainians, Armenians, Azerbaijanis, Tatars, and so on in Olanade in addition to native Evenki, Soyots, and Buryats alongside Russians. It's majority Russian by ethnicity according to the 2020 census, and overwhelmingly the language of public life is Russian, which leads to a kind of stereotype that it's primarily a Russian speaking city. Indeed, part of what being urban, Karatskoy, in Buryatia, um, part of being urban is uh, speaking Russian, and that's true not, not just in Buryatia, but in other parts of Russia as well. But there are many Buryat-speaking families in ulan Day who use Buryat at home and in religious contexts. And in my in my research, I focused on institutional contexts, namely in media institutions where Buryat was used alongside or instead of Russian in the workplace. So one of the main things that I show in the book is that Buryat is looked down upon in some contexts, but it's valorized in certain contexts and by certain audiences. In other words, it's not simply a matter of Buryat being not prestigious and Russian being prestigious, or vice versa, in fact. Um, It rather depends on audience and the scale of belonging that you're trying to invoke in a particular interaction. So reasons you might temporarily use Buryat, for example, even if you use Russian most of the time in your daily life include because you're going to the Buddhist Datsan or a shamanic ceremony that's heavily associated with Buryatness, maybe because you're demarcating a domestic space that's comfortable with friends or family, or because your coworkers use Buryat and you're trying to fit in, even maybe trying to get a job in a um, Buryat-owned business, for example. So methodologically, this was a three-part study. First, I wanted to show, uh, I wanted to see how media become the kind of material stuff of people's daily lives. That is, how they're used, sometimes not for the purposes for which they were uh, intended. so in these slides, the of Buryadunen, the um, or sorry, in these slides, pages pages of Buryatunen, uh, the flagship Buryat language newspaper of the Republic of Buryatia, are being used to wrap sacred Buddhist texts in place of traditional silk brocade, and to cover an offering plate. Here, for example, that's a page of Buryat um, Buryatunen, um, and you might also use some crummy. This is a Russian language <laughs> celebrity newspaper. You might use that to sell peanuts on the street, for example. So it works its way. Media works its way into people's lives in all sorts of unexpected ways, um, beyond the, like, intending to to buy a newspaper and read the newspaper, right? Um, so. Um, um, these are ways that 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 um, Buryat might be uh, that media might be used in unintended ways. Also, for example, um, the way that YouTube videos might be produced for one reason, and then become something else entirely. So this, this uh, video was made by a babushka Russian or not sorry, a Buryat grandmother actually. She made a video of her grandson eating some meat and thought it was cute and put it on YouTube or someone put it on YouTube for her. and. Um, the commentary about it started out as mostly like ha it's a cute kid but became an opportunity for people to uh critique and criticize the grandmother for speaking to her grandson in russian with with what they identified as a Buryat accent why doesn't she speak Buryat? they would say why um uh this is the problem this is the problem is that people aren't taking responsibility for you know furthering their um Furthering the the vitality of the ethno nation by not teaching their children and their grandchildren in Buryat, um, other people rushed to her defense. So it became a kind of and this often happens, right? That that media that's produced for one purpose becomes an opportunity to um, have some kind of debate or or uh, disagreement um, and see, therefore, as a the researcher, um, the the sort of. The crux of the crux of problems in ethno-linguistic ethno- belonging um, that the original poster didn't intend at all. So my research also included a lot of time in people's homes. I did a household media survey of about 60 households in both urban contexts and in rural areas in the districts of um, Buryatia, where I observed media practices and recorded what was in people's homes. I interviewed people, often watched TV or listened to the radio or played video games or otherwise participated in daily media practices. So this image on the top left is from a villagers home in Eastern Buryatia. But what it depicts is really typical of the area. Circulating through any one household, there might be um, Tibetan texts like these in the middle, um, handwritten Buryat prayers like this, Russian language newspapers produced at the level of the federation. I see Rasiskaya Gazeta back here, for example, or in Oulan day at the level of the republic. There might be um, Buryat language newspapers. You can see Buryatunen peeking in, peeking out down here, for example. Um, but then, and then there's n- there's not a cell phone in this picture, but. Uh, There might also be a cell phone running Facebook and Russian and English, really a wealth of multilingual media that are produced and that circulate at multiple overlapping scales, and that are then experienced on a daily basis by people as a kind of melange of languages and styles and sources. So I focus in the book on um, mid-level regional scales of belonging. Between the hyperlocal and the federation, so media could be produced at any of these scales, what are usually called markets in um, media research. Um, but because they're experienced by people like in this kind of overlapping way in their daily in their daily um, lives, um, they're not you know they're not separated like that for most people most of the most of the time. So I focused on on these. These, uh, these levels, these regional and district levels, for, for a couple of reasons. I intended it in part as a corrective to studies of media and globalization, because in our increasing analytical focus on the local and the global, we really risk, like here's the local and here's the global, we really risk losing the regional. In a multinational state like the Russian Federation, it is at this middle regional level where most ethno-national politics play out. So media produced by and for the Republic of Buryatia, Aga, and Usorda most clearly articulate, both explicitly and, you know, more often implicitly, the position of Buryats and Buryatia within national and global imaginaries. And so this is also the scale at which most native language media are produced at these regional and district level, district levels. So I also wanted to document and understand the linguistic practices and ideologies of the journalists and activists who produce this minority language media. So I interviewed journalists and conducted workplace observation at media institutions, both bigger and smaller. That was the Buryat State Television and Radio Company. And this is the um, Anginsky affiliate of the uh, Cheetah State Television Radio Company. Um, And wherever possible, I shadowed reporters and followed the editing process, including many occasions on which I was interviewed myself. So those became, in fact, some of the most important parts of research because I got to see how teams of television journalists, for example, negotiate the relationship between Buryat and Russian, how they decided what would be in Buryat and what would be in Russian, what constituted a Buryat story and what constituted a Russian story, um, and how they convinced the Members of the public to be interviewees often, when they were very hesitant to speak, boreat or on camera, or they just outright refused for some reasons. I'll get back to come back to you in a second. And then I could watch the resulting broadcasts with audience members in their homes and in interviews and focus groups. So I could get, got to kind of. Come, um, link up all of the sites and see the total circulation, production and circulation. And finally, I did a lot of archival research. Boriatia has a robust and deep history of printing, both in early book printing in Buddhist monasteries like and Songol and Aga, and in early print journalism with newspapers based in um, Verkhneudinsk, Ulanade's predecessor, that were run mainly by Jewish editors until the Bolshevik Revolution, actually. Um, so, those are two traditions that date to the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The, despite the fact that a lot of contemporary Buryats kind of tragically um, believe that they're their print history and their print culture started in the early Soviet period. Um, In fact, it stretches back earlier to the late 19th century. Um, In any case, those newspapers make it possible to get a sense of how the relationship between Russian and Buryat in print has changed um, over more than a century. And as any historians watching this know, um, one of the great things about any any historians here today know um, one of the great things about conducting research in the former soviet union is that state socialism as a regulatory system compelled everyone, including journalists and administrators and media institutions, to constantly self-document. So editorial meetings today are not well recorded, and a lot of decision-making happens informally inside conversations. But during the Soviet period, the editorial board of a newspaper or a radio station was nearly synonymous with the Communist Party organization of that institution. And they kept assiduous notes of what amounted to editorial board meetings. So those documents are very rich, and including a lot of explicit discussion about linguistic decisions, challengers producers faced in um, the challenges that producers faced in creating Buryat materials and um, and their projected or expected audience. Um, And I point that out partly because I want more people to use, (laughs) I'm hoping more people can use these these really great and rich resources um, from editorial boards um, for anybody studying the history of media. So when I started fieldwork for this project in 2005, I was interested in Buryat as a case of language maintenance. There are 329,100 total self-reported speakers of Buryat today. And that number is based on um, census data collected from across Mongolia, um, the People's Republic of China, and um, uh, Russia. Speakers are concentrated in Russia and northern Mongolia, and in the Shinahin region of Inner Mongolia in the PRC. In the last, um, all Russian census in twenty ten, um, because the twenty twenty data hasn't been totally collated yet, in uh, the, from the twenty ten census, two hundred eighteen thousand five hundred fifty seven people within the Russian Federation reported controlling Buryat, and so several thousand of those respondents reported their ethnicity as something other than Buryat but most said they were Buryat and most lived in the Republic of Buryatia and the neighboring Buryat territories so that makes this the sort of Buryat territory is the sort of epicenter of um, Buryat language production and that number also I should point out makes Buryat one of the major indigenous languages of North Asia second only to Sakha Yakut despite over four centuries of Buryat Russian contact in which Russian has decidedly been the code of general political and economic power so I was curious about how that could how maintenance had had um, had been achieved to the extent that it had but it turned out that um, what I witnessed over those years was a particularly stark decline in the language um, and by decline I mean that dramatically fewer people were reporting knowledge of Buryat and the language was overall being used in fewer contexts as well from generation to generation speakers in Buryatia have been shifting from Buryat um, which as recently as the 19th century was a kind of regional lingua franca uh, to Russian so in living memory there have actually been two periods of dramatic language shift. So a sense of decline permeates most people's perception. One accompanied rapid urbanization and industrialization in the 1960s when large numbers of ethnic outsiders came into Buryatia from Ukraine and the Caucasus and other western parts of the Soviet Union, and everyone relied, understandably, more heavily on Russian as a lingua franca so this period in particular produced what is now felt as a generation gap between knowledgeable Buryat elders and their Russian dominant adult children and the second major shift um, rupture even occurred over the years covered in the book so in the 2002 all-Russian census 72 percent of the total Buryat population of the Russian Federation um, reported knowledge of Buryat but by the 2010 census that number had fallen to 45 percent Now, within the Republic of Buryatia, the decline has been even sharper. In the same period, the percentage of the Republic's Buryat population reporting their native language as Buryat remained constant and high. um, I'm sorry, the percentage of the Republic's Buryat population uh, reporting knowledge of Buryat fell from 81% to 43%. But the percentage of Buryats reporting their native language as Buryat remained constant and high at 82% um, for some reasons I'll get to in a second. So the dizzying drop is likely due in part to changes in how linguistic knowledge is understood and reported on census forms. It's common in the former Soviet Union to consider one's native language that is to be one's heritage or ancestral language or what we would say in English is one's heritage or ancestral language, regardless of actual competence. So Russian censuses, censuses have been uneven in how or whether even they elicited the distinction between a language that one knows uh, and a language that one affiliates with. So the part of part of the reason for this decline is a change um, in which the sense, more more contemporary census forms, including in the twenty ten census, have allowed um, respondents to specify whether something is your Radnoyazik or a Yazik that you have language that you Vladiate control or uh, uh, no is not. But still, even, even with that change, in under a decade, the census figures suggest significant shift away from Boreat. And more subtly, over those same years, Boreat was receding from public life, albeit unevenly. So in the book, I argue that making and consuming media and using language are daily practices by which people perform and negotiate their citizenship within different scales of belonging, the Federation, the Republic, and the city or district, as well as clans, ancestral lineages, extended families, and Buryat and Russian speaking publics that are aligned with state borders unevenly at best. So that brings me to this second question. What forms of national revitalization or linguistic and cultural reclamation are possible in the 21st century? Massive social transformations over the 20th and 21st centuries have left many people in Buryatia with a profound sense of loss and um, seeking reclamation, and I really think that that is the right word in English. because, I mean, to reclaim and seeking reclamation as opposed to uh, revitalizing something. Because the Boryat language has been so strongly tied to a sense of Boryat belonging, loss of the language has come to index or point to a broader loss of cultural continuity. Thus language has become a touchstone in debates over Boryat cultural loss and a central sort of domain for reclamation. However, the specific media and linguistic resources available for performing this reclamation have been shaped by state-driven modernizing projects that were never felt to be complete and that ironically hastened the very changes that are now being battled against. So this has created a serious disjuncture that makes it very difficult to speak Boryat today in socially satisfying ways. Individuals reveal this, this disjuncture, which is to say they you know, they reveal the impact of past Soviet projects on their daily lives and their personhood in all kinds of subtle ways. The power of, of ethnography and of ethnographic writing is in showing that interplay between broad socio political and historical forces and people's minute everyday interactions. So that's what I try to do in the book. And by the same token, I'd like to address Soviet state policies of minority inclusion and exclusion for the remainder of my talk today by beginning not with historical background, but rather with a question that reveals the lasting impact of those policies. And this is especially in chapter six of the book. Why don't you know your own language? This is a question that is often said to people's relatives, to strangers, or sometimes people say it Sort of silently to themselves, or kind of mumble it. Sometimes it's said with sadness. Sometimes with a with resignation, or as a challenge, or angrily. I have heard it said hundreds, if not thousands, of times um, over the course of my research. The same question: Why don't you know your own language? The first time I heard this expression, it was uttered by an uh, a sort of elderly um, babushka shaking her cane angrily at a young woman who stood in terrified silence like a deer in headlights who was holding a tray of meat dumplings. My friend Darima and I were in a cafe uh, outside Ulan Ude, and two babushki speaking, two grannies, speaking Buryat had tried reportedly, uh, repeatedly sorry, to order, um, they tried repeatedly to order meat dumplings like these. Um, boza uh, from the two young women behind the counter. So these are boza and uh, the national origins of meat dumplings are hotly debated across Asia so I'm not going to get too far into this, <laughs> but the, ver- the Buryat version looks like this. The, the, it's a national dish of, of Buryatia. Um, out of many other places too, in different names. The girls had understood the Babushki's order, or at least they'd understood part of it, but they answered in Russian, and then the Babushki replied in Buryat, to which the girls responded in Russian, until the Babushki began like shaking their heads and tisking with increasing frustration, whereupon the girls fell mute. And my friend Dorima, sitting opposite me at our creaky little table, clearly did not want to get involved. She like instinctively ducked her head, peeking over the top of her steaming mug of milky tea to watch. As the babushki's voices grew louder, a hushed silence fell over the cafe. Everyone's attention trained on the frozen girls. They were practically in tears, eager to please their elders and running back and forth from the kitchen, but incapable of responding in Buryat. So finally, the girl holding the dumplings broke the silence by setting the tray down with a clatter, splashing some tea onto the vinyl tablecloth. And the babushki began eating and chatting among themselves and everyone in this crowded cafe returned to their own meals as though with a collective sigh of relief. Later, I had to ask Darima about the tension in the room and about her own apparent fear of being approached by the elderly women. So this was, re- was really early in my fieldwork. In 2005, I was thoroughly an outsider, and I did not yet understand how meat dumplings could elicit such terror. And over the next few years, I heard this expression many times. One afternoon, I was sitting with a television journalist who i will she recorded, Sayana. Uh, she re- was reviewing recordings of uh, an interview in Buryat to be edited for the evening news. So there were a lot of ums and pauses. And the man that she was interviewing, or the was being interviewed, um, looked really uncomfortable. And he switched frequently into Russian away from Buryat. And eventually, he pointed to his friend and suggested that they interview him instead. And Sayana, watching this later, you know, tapped the screen with her pen and sort of sighed. And she said, why don't you know your own language? What in the world does that mean, though, to not know your own language? In post-Soviet Russia, I mean, from outside of post-Soviet Russia, it makes no sense. Like there's a, this is a, a category that of usually a, to be a native speaker of a language means that you acquired it, started learning, started learning it and speaking it on a regular basis before the age of five or six, perhaps. Um, uh, and it, it doesn't, it's kind of like not, it's kind of, it's almost nonsensical to say like, why, how could you not speak your own language? Um, but in post-Soviet Russia, again, people often identify their own native language, the Radnoyazik, as their ancestral or their heritage language, which does not necessarily have anything to do with competence. So, thus, a person might identify her native language or own language, Svoyazik, as Buryat based on her cultural or ethnic self identification as a Buryat without claiming active or passive knowledge of the language's grammar or lexicon. And As for knowing or not knowing, these are variable and shifting attributions. Derima claimed that she had no knowledge of Boryat, um, even though I'd witnessed her on many occasions carrying on bilingual conversations with her relatives, they speaking Boryat and she responding in Russian, what we call in linguistics non-accommodating bilingualism sometimes. There, so there are many people like Darima and the girls at the cafe, especially in their 20s and 30s during my fieldwork, who have excellent passive competence in boyat but cannot or will not speak. And others speak boyat as a first language but are more or less illiterate in the literary standard. Um, more rarely someone might control the literary standard but have little command of colloquial speech, which would have been me for a long time, actually. Um, and there, then there are still more who have many, many, many thousands of people, in fact, who have little or no passive competence, but excellent knowledge of the pragmatic uses to which Buryat as a code may be put. So an onlooker in the cafe, for instance, might not understand what was being said in Buryat, but can recognize when a speaker has switched into it and might understand that the babushki intensified their scolding by conducting it in Buryat, or that performing a toast in Buryat at a banquet demonstrates membership in a broader Buryat community. So such onlookers might be said to possess social social or cultural knowledge of the indexical meanings of boryat or how boryat points to larger ethnic national gender or familial identities and affiliations in other words one need not self identify as a speaker of boryat to have some sort of knowledge about boryat or to be taken as a speaker by someone else so it's that possibility. It's the assumption that a person will speak Buryat in in a certain way that creates problems for the girls in the cafe. Most of the time, they likely get along just fine speaking Russian. Buryat is not often demanded in public life, so it's difficult to fault them for being unable to speak, even though the Babushki and many of their other elders certainly do so. So we have to ask about the processes by which expectations regarding the locations, uses, and meanings of linguistic practices are invested into persons such that asking a rhetorical question like, why don't you know your own language, makes sense. As unlikely as it may seem in a cafe or a rural banquet, the participants of such quotidian interactions are caught up in the same field of language politics as what is battled over in courts and legislative bodies political speeches, and other forums of you know, politics with a capital P. The questions are the same. Who counts as a speaker? Who counts as a speaker worth listening to? And who has the right to ask? These questions are all the more poignant and fraught in the context of dramatic social changes that are experienced not only as language shift, but as economic, cultural, and social shift as well. And when what is at stake is not only the future of the language, but also because of the particular role that the native language plays in Buryat cultural politics, the future of a minority language public that has long been taken to be the substance of the ethno-nation. Third, what can we learn from Buryatia about strategies of diversity and inclusion and their repercussions? This is something um, I wanna argue is unique about um, post-socialist context. It's the same, It's the same global challenge of minority representation and vitality that's faced in post colonial contexts around the world that revitalizing or reclaiming a language is often seen as key to revitalizing a people and reclaiming ruptured social relations of one sort or another. But in Buryatia and in native Siberia more generally, it has to happen through Soviet specific terms and institutions. So for people outside, people who study minority media and language revitalization outside the former Soviet space, the Buryat case presents a real puzzle in that um, regardless of actual usage or the level of endangerment, Buryat language media are legally provided for by the state on the principle that Buryat is the native Meaning, in this case, the heritage or ancestral language of the titular nationality of the republic. Now, outside of the former Soviet space, most um, people who study media, minority media, and language revitalization have sort of assumed that um, producing media in the minority language will raise its status and protect the language. And the Usually the state is not the primary supporter. And so it's it's been often been argued that, well, geez, if, if the state would only support minority um, media production, then we would have what we needed to revitalize the language and everything would be fine. Almost like a panacea. Like this is going to be the ma- sort of magic, the magic solution. So so Buryatia would seem to show us that. That this should be, the, it should be the case that, that we are going to have great language revitalization or great language maintenance, right? Um, so, because of this this principle that by which Buryat is um, is supported by the state, it does appear on you know the signs of state-run buildings, alongside Russian state news organizations and some private media companies as well. Provide publications, broadcasts, and limited web services in Buryat. Most of the media produced in Buryat parallels media in Russian, meaning that a radio station, for example, will have a Buryat language division and a um, Russian language division that may share material and stories. So on the face of things, like this, wait, let me this more, there we go. Um, So on the face of things too, the Soviet state actively and overtly encouraged and promoted the use of Buryat, tying literacy specifically in Buryat to the ability to drive a tractor and build a city. And in the later Soviet period that, um, that participating in, um, uh, by reading a newspaper written in, written in Buryat, published in Buryat, show, showed that you were a good Soviet citizen. Um, this was especially clear you know, so, that, so that to be a good Buryat was to be a good so, so Soviet so, Soviet citizen as well, um, and this was especially clear in how Russian and Buryat were institutionalized alongside one another with uh, what were called duplicated or dublirovaniya like publications, where there would be a Russian language newspaper and a Buryat language newspaper that would share material um, through the late Soviet period. That's the sort of basis for today's um, sharing as well. So the, the way that, the way the state funded media, media today rather run duplicated news programming is sort of based on the same system. So all of this, all of this should put Buryat on good footing. The conventional wisdom is that having minority language media itself will be like the magic answer to minority language attrition, like provide it and they will speak. And yet the language is still on the whole receding. Why? Well, because in fact, these projects can have an unintended consequences especially when media are built up in an authoritative domain like news media to the exclusion of informal popular genres like children's programming and entertainment. So it's partly that there's less media being produced in Buryat today than in the mid-Soviet um, period. And it's partly that, um, so at the time of my field research, there had never been, for example, a radio or television station dedicated solely to Buryat language material. Now there's finally, a. a, a Radio station. has always just been pieces um, scattered throughout the broadcast today. Um, it's also partly about claims to indigeneity. So, elsewhere in the world, key goals of minority language media have been language maintenance and revitalization, which in turn have been understood as issues of indigenous rights. But Buryat speakers have not generally taken up or benefited from um, the romantic rhetoric of indigenous language endangerment and death often marshaled in defense of minority language speakers elsewhere. So indigenous rights are not the the primary framework in which Buryat uh, leaders and activists have asserted their language rights or their rights to political autonomy. And this is something that I examine at at length in the book in um, chapter one. There's some anxiety in Russia that the federation will dissolve along ethno-national lines despite a strong countervailing trend toward um, Russian ethnic nationalism. So central authority feel it necessary to constantly reaffirm the incorporation of semi-autonomous border republics like the Republic of Buryatia into Russia. This was evidenced by the propaganda employed in the 2011 celebration of the 350th anniversary of the voluntary entry of Buryatia into the composition of of Russia. So this this slogan significantly recasts the story of a violent military conquest and moves the date of creation of a discrete territorial unit called Buryatia earlier by about 250 years. And and those facts were not lost on the well-educated members of Buryatia's cultural elite who sort of grumbled about this in 2011 and sarcastically emphasized the word voluntary, (laughs) The 350 years of of the voluntary um, entry of uh, Boriachi into the composition of Russia every time that they said it. And perhaps this lack of local enthusiasm is why the campaign slogans had to be repeated on every building, billboard, supermarket, plastic bag, and other available surface this year, even when sometimes it made absolutely no sense. Uh, In in exchange for, incidentally, in exchange for using some version of the campaign slogans and imagery, you could get funding um, from the federal government during during this campaign. The lavish campaign revealed deep anxiety on the part of federal authorities that was perplexing, both to me and to the Buryats with whom I spoke that year, because it seemed so unnecessary. Most Buryats have internalized a very pacifistic, if not passive, acceptance of their position vis-a-vis ethnic Russians. Um, But the authorities sending this cash were correct to think that residents' ongoing identification with multiculturalism, and specifically Russian Buryat Brotherhood, is a key centripetal force in regional minority politics. And specifically, it's helped uh, and continues to help ameliorate opposition to the steps that Moscow has taken to lessen ethno-national autonomy, um, such as including replacing the president with a head and um, the mergers that I mentioned at the beginning of my talk. So in both... um, on stage performances and in everyday off stage conversations, speakers invoke the friendship of the peoples, especially this popular slogan of the Soviet period, promoting inter ethnic brotherly love between all peoples of the Soviet Union. It was on that. Um, so on all of these, right? There's the there's the brotherly love. There's the peasant and the the peasant and the the peasant and the herder together. The friendship of the peoples was widely used across Soviet space, of course, but it took on special importance in Buryatia, where it remains a point of local pride and a powerful deterrent to physical violence, if not latent racism. And there are several reasons for Buryatia's exceptionalism on this count, which I could get into in the Q and A if someone is interested. But the upshot is that in the current century, the Buryat-Russian uh, friendship. Maybe we should say Russian Boryat here. Um, friendship is part and parcel of Boryatia's identity, appearing everywhere from public service announcements about the year of the family to uh, fashion and grocery store advertisements. And in this self-identification, residents of Buryatia often contrast themselves with what they see as stereotypically violent Chechens, parochial Chukchi, or chauvinistic Russians. They contrast the Republic of Buryatia with other parts of Russia where racially motivated hate crimes directed most violently and egregiously toward Central Asians and Africans and people of the Caucasus and Asians have become a a sort of part of daily life. Um, And whether that's, you know, True or not, or as a stereotype or not, um, the fact remains that people in Buryatia and Buryats very much believe it, and so it motivates some um, re-territorialization. Buryats living in Ulan-Ude often cite the azitophobia rampant in um, other parts of Russia as a reason to move back home. So recon- reconfiguring Buryatia as a safe homeland in the face of rising ethnic national, ethnic Russian nationalism might risk privileging Buryat nationalism within Buryatia, and that is indeed a fear of some non-Buryats living in Buryatia who already complain of the stranglehold that ethnic Buryats have over government and um, certain industries. But the mitigating ideals of multicultural tolerance and pacifism are part of Buryat self-understanding, even if they're not always achieved. So this was evident in the reaction of Arsalan, a friend of mine, to a photograph that I had taken in Bykalsk, an industrial town and ski area right outside the boundary of the Republic of Buryatia, and I'll conclude with this example because it shows the limits of inclusionary practices really well. The graffiti says, that is, Russia for the ethnic Russians. Um, As Arsalan and I flipped through my recent photographs, he noticed this image and pointed to it as an example of the ignorant Russian nationalism that exists right outside the borders of the territory. Arsalan is something of a Buryat nationalist himself, so I sort of half-teasingly asked whether he would prefer that it say Russia de la Buryat, Russia for the Buryats. Of course not, he said, offended by the suggestion. Either statement is anathema to a regional identity that elevates visions of multicultural statehood over ethnic political autonomy. And the graffiti also pushes against a tacit agreement operative in the Baikal region that Buryats will not demand more political autonomy as long as ethnic Russians refrain from being overtly nationalistic on Buryat territory. And as I say, I think that really illustrates the sort of boundaries of um, inclusionary practices, uh, the, sort of, the sort of line that you come up to and cannot, and cannot sort of cross um, in the region. So I'll end there.
1: Thank you, thank you very much. That was really, really very rich and fascinating and uh, I by no means undersold your dynamism. <laughs> uh, so uh, it was really uh, an, a, a wonderful presentation. Um, okay, so now let's open the floor for uh, comments and discussions. And um, uh, does anyone, would anyone like to start? I mean, I can certainly uh, jump right in with my own questions as, as people are thinking. Because uh, uh, this, you know, you provoked a lot of thoughts on my part. Um, all right, well then, l- let me start um, myself by asking, uh, you know, Catherine. Uh, so, I, you, th- this case is very interesting because, uh, you know, oftentimes this is studied from the perspective or in different situations, uh, like uh, other Central Asian. Or the Central Asian countries where these kinds of politics over language and identity—they're uh, very. They they in some ways sound similar, but they in some ways quite different because you have these new, you know, nationalizing states uh, with uh, you know which are ethnic and which are promoting uh, the revival of, say, Kazakh or Kyrgyz or Uzbek uh, as opposed to Russians from the perspective of you know a, a government that now is supposed to, to represent the supposed nations. And so I'm curious, um, you know, how do you, you start out by referring to this as an extended case. How do you situate this case in terms of the broader uh, set of cases or the universe of cases? It's a case exactly of what? How does it, how does it resemble, how does it differ from other cases where, you know, you have um, a contestation over a, a language language? Um, uh, as a result of you know the dissolution of empire or something
0: like that. Yeah, thanks, Ted. That's a great question, and that's a good disciplinary question too, because we don't usually talk of in terms of case studies in anthropology. <laughs> it's like a, so it's, a, it's good. To, it's good for as a sociological sort of and political science question too. Um, so that I would compare, yeah, in the in the scope of cases, Buryatia is and the Buryat territories are much more like other uh, semi-autonomous republics. And, and places now with territories now with a sobi status, with special status inside of the Russian Federation, then they are like um, separate nation states, for sure. Mm-hmm. And the main reason, the main sort of vector of difference there is that Buryatia does not have a high degree of separatism, and it is highly unlikely to separate from the Russian Federation. And I find myself making this argument, especially in Washington D.C., like all the time, it's like just get it out of your head. Like it's like not like they're not separatists. Um, largely because that was tried, floated in the um, there was the Far Eastern Republic as far back as 100 years ago. But there was also the it was very interesting sort of experiment 100 years ago. Um, but there was more recently in the ni- early 1990s the idea of separate of, of of independent nationhood was nation statehood was um pursued briefly by uh Buryat nationalists and it was um never really economically possible right it's, Buryatia is um quite marginalized and quite frankly too impoverished to to sort of stand on its own and so the the possibility of separatism or of of uh sort of standing alone has never been great enough for that kind of sort of investment to sort of take place like sort of emotional investment to take place moreover it was a really um you know the 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 brief the sort of brief moment of of bouat nationalism in the late 1980s and early 1990s um resulted in a very difficult what, what is by all accounts, it was a very difficult uh, decade, where speaking Buryat at all and and making any sort of intimations that you were interested in promoting Buryat national or ethnic identity was considered extremely chauvinistic and anti-Russian. And some of those sentiments, you know, linger to this linger to this day, and to to the point of you know comparing this to other parts of the Russian Federation. Um, that specific kind of problem in the 1990s and that of, of the ethnic language or the, the local language becoming associated with being anti russian is something that Janan Ferguson has also documented in the Sakha Republic in the same in the same very same years. So so I, yeah I would caution against using against comparing Buryatia and the sahara Republic for example to the experiences of people and peoples in um and of ethnic and linguistic revitalization and reclamation in um this, this, the independent uh, nation states, for that reason, mm-hmm. there, it's not. I mean, because you have to, because it's it's not just a matter of like not having enough power and authority to stand alone. As much as it is a matter of like, because of that, then having to always work against the possibility that you will be seen as two separatists. I mean, a, a television editor once put it to me this way when I was uh, I was upset by I, I was uh, I was I was surprised by how um, central authorities at the state television radio company had decided that the number of minutes of boyat broadcasting would be limited reduced once again and when this i happened to be at this television station when this decision came in and i was upset more less by the i mean i admit i was like a little emotionally invested by this point and i was upset less by the news itself than by how the staff reacted to it because the the Buryat editor was quite like not going to do anything about it and I was like well doesn't it doesn't it like aren't you going to like say anything like doesn't it bother you like how do you feel about it and he was like look it is much better to be quiet and not be seen as rocking the boat um, and not make noise than it is to um, you know to to make any kind of claim Um, because that way you're left alone and so that you know this like this desire to be sort of left alone and to live to be like taken to to, to live a sort of like normal and and quiet life sort of outstrips the desire to undertake the kind of extreme um the extreme sort of political measures that would be necessary to sort of extreme investment of time and energy and <laughs> resources and you know and, hmm. and, and sticking your neck out too for that matter too so it, that's yeah, interesting it's, so uh, actually
1: deters like a, any kind of sort of what we think of as a national identity movement or you know political entrepreneurs who might want to push the uh linguistic uh nationalism argument in order to uh, that absolutely. that's really uh not not at all accepted even with among those who even as you know as a pure practical matter hmm? yeah, yeah, among absolutely. those who want and to, promote mean, to pour you out language
0: yeah absolutely and to the same to the same sort of point i would say that I mean I've been surprised since the end of my research I've been surprised at how willing um Burjats and ulana the people in Ulanuday day are have been to engage in the political extensive political protests I mean Ulanuday day has actually been the site of quite a lot of political protest um but that the but it's telling that the protests that they're engaging in even anti yadina Rossiya and anti Putin has never been Ethno-national. It's not. never been on ethno-national grounds, right? So even when they're protesting the lack of political autonomy, it's couched as like, "Darn it, we want to. We just want to be able to vote for somebody outside of Yadine Aracía." Not as like a loss of Boryat cultural autonomy. Um, so it's just a, more more to the same point that like that ethno-national, ethno-linguistic difference can't be the kind of substance of the of the political. Mm. Um, of the political anger or frustration because that would make it to seem too separatist and too chauvinistic and too anti-russian
1: that's very interesting okay uh so i see sarah phillips my colleague uh, from rei has a question sarah go ahead thank you so much kate oh let me put my hand down <laughs> oh thank you for a wonderful talk i learn uh so much from you every time i hear you speak uh, I actually wanted to ask you Kate more about sort of the state of journalism in the Republic of Briatia. I know we have some students here who uh, are journalism majors and I think would be really interested to hear more kind of just what what does it mean to be a journalist in Buryatia and what does it mean to be a Buryat journalist in Buryatia? You sort of gestured to this a couple of times and I was really intrigued when you mentioned how you had, had kind of observed journalists and how they decided what questions to ask in Buryat or solicit answers in Buryat versus in Russian. And I, I would love more details about that kind of negotiation.
0: Sarah, thank you for that question, because it lets me talk about stuff that I didn't have time to talk about. <laughs> um, so I would point you to chapter, I think it's chapter five of, of the book, which is about how um, how journalists end up being these kind of anchors of authority in the boyat community, and especially for for boyat language production, How they how they become the kind of the standard bearers and think of themselves as the standard bearers and so they see they take their their um their role extremely seriously and are looked up to as the authoritative th- the authoritative speakers of of um of Borea, alongside some sort of strange bedfellows like um buddhist lamas and uh shamans um buddhist lamas shamans and and like professors and journalists are kind of all in the same kind of c- c- category of like and babushki like like grannies <laughs> um who make you tea and you know will teach you Buryat at their kitchen tables, like those are the sort of arbiters of of Buryat um, cultural linguistic authority in many ways. Um, So they they hold a Buryat journalists, even more than Russian journalists, hold this very important social role and have a lot more prestige than your average probably journalists, if you're thinking globally about journalists. They've been subject, however, to the same kinds of crises in journalism. And so that the, um, one of the more fascinating things that happened during my research was the the kind of crisis of journalism that people often refer to as like this you know, movement online and movement away from print sources, on the one hand, coincided with the crisis in specifically post-Soviet journalism, creating a new, um, a sort of new, uh, more objective reporting as opposed to um, socialist era ideals and ideology, and coincided with the the economic crisis in journalism um, as. Many, many journalists have lost their jobs in Russia just as they have outside of Russia in response to audiences leaving, um, leaving print sources. But what was fascinating about this and to, to watch it happen in Buryatia was that the Buryat language journalists had a bit of protection uh, vis-a-vis their Russian counterparts. So part of my research was directly comparing Russian language journalists and Buryat language journalists who were working in these bilingual environments. And the, the, during the Sakrashenia, the layoffs of um, the sort of mass layoffs in, in journalism, in many cases the Buryat language journalists had job protection because the state is required to produce, um, state-funded media is required to produce media in both Buryat and Russian So they could more easily, editors could more easily let go of their Russian-speaking staff, were much easier to replace with the Buryats than the Buryat language staff. And so what ended up happening was that a lot of the Buryat language um, staff, and we're only talking about, I should say too, we're talking about 30 30 journalists who are producing journalism in Buryat on a regular basis. So it's about the same number of, um, it's about the same size of community as Irish language journalists in Ireland, in fact. Um, And very comparable in some ways, actually, these minority language journalists. But so you had all these, there were suddenly these Boyat language journalists who were you know, struggling to produce text in Russian because they had not been trained in Russian language journalism. There are two very different sort of pedagogical tracks for this, um, but were at least at least they had jobs. You know, <laughs> you know, and so they found themselves sort of strangely um, benefiting financially from this from this this weird sort of moment. And when I say that they have different tracks, um, this is another peculiar thing about being a Buryat journalist as opposed to a Buryat language journalist as opposed to a Russian language journalist is that you have to specialize in one or the other fairly early on. So the Russian language journalists until very recently had, they had a, a majors in journalism that you could do. And until very recently, the Buryat language journalists uh, instead majored in things like Buryat language um, uh, and pedagogy. So they, they were often like t- training to be teachers, school teachers or something like this. Um, and they only recently, while I, while I was doing my research, they formed a new track um, inside of local universities, so that the Buryat language journalists, st- students would also like get some journalism training. But previously, it had been since the since the 1970s, it had been the case that like if you were a Russian language journalist, you were trained in journalism, and if you were a Buryat language journalist, you were trained in like Buryat language pedagogy. And so they 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 really emphasize those different. And then you know of course they enf- end up emphasizing their very different sort of social roles um, based on that kind of really different training that they've had too.
1: Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that was uh, quite a change that, uh, and, and quite a challenge that the Buryat language journalists faced having to convert to, to the Russian. Uh, okay, next we have a question from Abigail. Please turn on your video and your mic. Your question.
0: Hi, hi, Dr. Graper. thank you so much for a wonderful talk. Um, I have so many questions, but I'll just ask one for now. Um, and so I was wondering, um, you mentioned kind of a gap that's left between this official traditional media in Buryat, but lack of perhaps like children's videos or like language media that maybe is more everyday. And so I was wondering if you had observed any um, kind of Attempts to close that gap, whether that be government, like kind of government-sponsored or not government-sponsored, and like where that's coming from. Yeah, good question. Good question. This is like the holy grail of, I think, <laughs> sure should be like the holy grail of, of. Um, language revitalization media. It's the one of the main, I sort of conclude the book with a couple of um, practical recommendations for language revitalization that come out of this research. And one of them is um, to produce more media in non-news genres. So specifically for children, Um, a lot of people in my research lamented the loss of a children's, uh, like a children's cartoon and a like children's once one specific cartoon that they really really missed. Um and also the a lot of people cited the lack of like entertaining programming that there's not like a lot of there's not like a lot of um in fact there's almost none. There's like, almost no like entertainment. It's all like news and human interests. And so that's that's not it's not like reaching people where they are. Um that's but that's just the state produced media. So in I su- suspect this is true in Tatarstan as well, in um uh, Buryatia and the Sahara Republic too, like um one of the more more interesting things about this part of the world, as opposed to other parts of the world, is that people feel very strongly that producing media in the, the native local language or the titular language of the Republic is the state's responsibility. And so they're extremely hesitant. Like anytime I brought up like the possibility of applying for grants, like nonprofits, organizations and things, like most people were very hesitant about that. And they were like, no, that's not like, we shouldn't have to do that. Like it should be the Republic that funds this stuff. And so it's, that makes it kind of hard to, it makes it hard for non-state driven projects to kind of get off the ground because there's that, that expectation. But in Buryatia, there were, um, at the time of my research, there were a couple of um uh, local television stations, private, privately run, tripped, uh, commercial television stations that had figured out that there was this kind of market and this need, and so they were working um, in concert, especially with a Mongolian company um, in one case, to produce um, to produce more Buryat language programming that would be more like privacatsunia, like more like more like entertaining, you know. And a lot of but but a lot of it is really grassroots. So that the Buryat language radio station that I mentioned, which broadcasts like Buryat pop music. It's called Buryat FM if you want to look at it. <laughs> um is uh that was a labor of love and and resulted it's state run, actually it's state funded. Um to my former point <laughs> but it was it was it was um, created eventually because so many people um, argued for it over such a long period of time so many activists and eventually it got the support of the buddhist sangha of russia the buddhist the um Buryat buddhist um uh, religious organization and that ended up being the sort of like linchpin for that for that production um and other other really exciting sort of grassroots stuff is like creating um buryat subtitles for um like hollywood blockbusters like a friend of mine was working on like subtitling terminator movies because that was like something that they wanted to bring to villages to like to to show on um people didn't have cell phones running; that were capable of running television or movies yet so they wanted to like put it on a projector screen you know and and um have like terminator films and other hollywood films um subtitled in russian and i think or and i think one of the most exciting things was subtitling kids video games so figuring out how, to, you know, and really like young children, like video games that young children were playing, like subtitling those in boya So there are a lot of exciting projects like that going on, but it usually comes down to like one person just being really interested in doing it as opposed to being a kind of, um, you know, broader, broader sort of project because, p- partly because of these funding sort of limitations and just time too. So like someone will do it on, you know, on the side, like, or they'll have access to print resources or to computers because they work at the Ministry of Education or the Ministry of Culture. And so they can do a project or like make a poster, but then they don't have really like sustained um, k- projects. So it's gonna, it's, it, in, in specifically in Buryatia, and maybe the same thing is true in Tatarstan, your case too, like it takes, it, it's gonna take some like state support ultimately to, to get a lot of those non-news media um, media started
1: well um we're just about out of time um and i i can i'm gonna ask one more quick question but the, before i do does anybody else have uh a question or a comment well then okay so my question is um it, it really again reflects my disciplinary ignorance as a sociologist but uh You use the phrase early on uh, digital ethnography so um i'm curious you know what is digital ethnography and uh you know is that sort of a is it a is it a a big huge movement within uh anthropology or is it something that's kind of new and emerging i mean i imagine in the world that we live in today it might uh, maybe becoming increasingly uh, widely used so could you just comment a little bit on that <laughs>
0: indeed digital yes digital ethnography is the it's the new frontier of <laughs> anthropological research during the pandemic for sure i have a whole class full of students who are currently doing mostly digital ethnography for their ethnographic methods, because that's what we have available to us, right? I mean, as ethnographers, we try to meet people where they are, right? Like, you, ethnographic methods depend on having direct contact, direct social contact with people where they are. And if when people are in on Zoom, <laughs> you meet them on Zoom. <laughs> um, you can do d- digital ethnography in chat rooms where you're you adapt your traditional sort of methods, like participant observation, for example, to a digital environment. So you can do participant observation inside of a video game. You could do digital participation or participant observation inside of a chat room where you become one of the members of the chat group or um, on Discord servers. I've got some students doing work on Discord servers, for example, Um, yeah.
1: Come on so- over, Ted. <laughs> do <I laughs> mean, do you get world. pushed back down from are, are there some traditionalists in anthropology who say, oh, no, you can't do that. That's not the same. I mean, I'm just curious, yeah. you know, is that is it uh, like any revolutionary or new or innovative uh, method? Presumably there's some Controversy over yeah. it, or you don't find it at all.
0: No, no, you're right, and I think actually the most important thing to note, to maybe note, is that although uh, everybody seems excited, and we've all been talking about digital ethnography for like a decade at least, it is still the case that to get published in most traditional, to get you know a journal article published in most traditional um, journals of anthropology. You need to link your online observations to some kind of offline observations, which was something I was thinking about as I was writing up my digital ethnography in the in my book. Right, it was that it's it's it was specifically I'm specifically writing about moving from you know offline conversations and from and conversations about politics and living rooms into online spaces, and so for me it was sort of topicalized anyway that I was doing that, but I think that's going to be a problem for us in anthropology is that we have to come to grips with the fact that we're not yet, we're not yet like okay with on some level um, thinking of humans as presenting themselves entirely decoupled from offline interactions and moving to these entirely online spaces.
1: Yes. Well, uh, on that note,
0: <laughs> digital that online human. interaction.
1: No, no. I th- thank you very much, Kate. It's really been a pleasure, and you know, I, I really appreciate uh, your mission here, uh, with you know, with which you led. That you know, Russia is a very ethnically, geographically diverse country, and indeed, I certainly share uh, your perspective that too much attention is paid to the sort of European Moscow, St. Petersburg part, part, but. You know, this is really important work to get out the message and to, to give us this rich and very nuanced and very complex appreciation uh, for the, you know, one Asian uh, region community uh, and the indigenous folks uh, who you've been uh, researching and working and, and collaborating with there. So uh, I see lots of uh, applause uh, icons up there and let me join. Uh, it's a great pleasure.